from a profit and loss standpoint, personalized learning is the most efficient learning delivery system. Period. Uh, there is, you know, at the end of the day, if you get if you would get to the ideal situation, is there's no inefficiency. I'm only going to train and educate people for what they don't already know. It's that simple. It's respectful of time. There's a significant time savings. And so outside of that, if you want to not look at from an ROI standpoint, you're looking at just going back to the human beings. We're showing respect to these individuals by not wasting their time. Welcome to Second Opinions, a HealthStream podcast. I'm your host, Brad Weeks. Join me as I talk to some of the preeminent thought leaders and experts working in healthcare today. In these candid interviews, we're going to hear some alternative views. We're definitely going to challenge conventional wisdom, and we're going to get a little personal. But we are looking for second opinions. Join us. Norm Damaris is the Chief Executive Officer of Accelerated Learning Dynamics. Since 1989, Mr. Damaris has founded five companies in the manufacturing and high-tech industries. Norm also serves as chairman of Tier 1 Performance Solutions. Prior to forming Tier 1 Performance, he served as president and CEO of Cambridge Digital Media in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Prior to acquiring the entrepreneurial bug, Norm worked with Raytheon, GE Aerospace, and Spinnaker Software in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Norm holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Fitchburg State College and an MBA in Government Contracting from Western New England College. Norm, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks, Brad, and it's great to be here. And in addition to the background you just read, I'm also involved with education throughout the state of Kentucky and uh, also serve on the Northern Kentucky University's Board of Regents. Education has become an extremely critical part of all that we do at Tier 1 and XLD. Our ultimate goal is to help workforces develop and perform at their absolute very best, both at an individual level as well as an organizational level. Tell us more about Accelerated Learning Dynamics, or XLD, as a company. So Tier 1 Performance Solutions is the the primary company we formed back in 2001, and Tier 1 has done a a tremendous amount in and around human performance across multiple industries and, and of course, in healthcare. About eight years into Tier 1, we developed some tremendous technology and um, intellectual property around personalized learning. We decided to launch Accelerated Learning Dynamics to focus exclusively in that space in healthcare. What about learning and organizational change and just even human performance in general? What drives you? What are you passionate about? Well, human performance has always been just fascinating to me. I was always interested in how can we use technology to improve human performance and finding ways to um, apply technologies for that improvement in human performance. What happened along the way, though, was I was then introduced to things such as the neuroscience, adult learning theories, and more of the behavioral side of learning. We're trying to get people to perform so they're engaged and they're fulfilled and it impacts their lives. And today, um, we're extremely focused on how do we impact the lives of our people? How do we impact the lives of our customers? How do we impact the lives of our communities? And we believe strongly that performance, education, motivation, things of that nature, not only will improve a human being within the four walls of an organization, but outside to the communities and things that will pass on to generations to come. We are committed to anything we can do to help with human performance, uh, whether it be education, training, um, or other things. So 
that's that's where we are, where our passion comes from. How has that concept of accelerated learning evolved over the past few years? Accelerated learning is something also known as personalized learning, and the idea behind this was uh, individuals. We do, we all have different experiences, and we all come to the table with uh, different backgrounds and knowledge and skills. So the idea behind it is. Why should everyone receive the same exact education and training? It's grossly inefficient. Um, it's not very good for the user. Uh, it's time-wasting. So we have been doing some studies with the Air Force Research Laboratories starting about a decade ago now and doing time studies and studies on personalization of learning. And so ultimately, you've got to assess an individual and find out where their current state is and then provide them only with the knowledge and information that they need in order to get to a performance level. Um, so we've been researching this for years. We've done several studies, um, also in time studies and decay rate studies, and have basically proven that um, we can provide individuals with just the information they need, and they will still retain that information months and days and years later. Certainly, uh, those listening are within organizations that are undergoing massive changes every day, regardless of the industry, uh, particularly in healthcare. So how have you seen personalized learning shape organizational change. What we found in all industries today, not just healthcare, but across all sectors, uh, the change is occurring so quickly uh, in, in every aspect that time is critically important. So the personalization of learning really is the respect of an individual's time. We basically only want to provide them with what they need to know when they need to know it. The days of old where you sit in a classroom for four, eight, 16 hours, uh, that's not extremely efficient for anybody. And as, uh, as we all know, some folks may need all that training education. Several of them already come to that education with knowledge that they don't need to be learning and basically end up tuning out for a large part of that. So, and the other side of that is the stress induced on individuals where when they're taken out of their current workflow or their current task, uh, oftentimes they're thinking about, wow, when I get back there, nothing's been done. I've got to double up and, uh, or triple up and actually provide a lot more, um, well, adds a lot more stress to them to go back and uh, catch up with where they left off. So uh, the personalized learning piece is really something that you will be seeing more and more of. If you'll take a look across uh, America, and particularly in the marketing uh, world and social world, virtually everything is personalized today. And so the education industry will follow and is following uh, at this point in time. Can you talk a little bit more about some of these recent findings uh, that have affected and shaped your model for change and change management? Over the last 15 or so years, 20 years, we've really taken a much more of a scientific look at education. And um, our staff is made up of folks with adult education, uh, backgrounds and PhDs, um, cognition, uh, psych IO, neuroscience. And so during the last several years, we've really been focusing on what's the science behind the learning, not just the technology behind the learning. And so during the course of that time, we have developed, uh, and I've actually recently written a book called Applying Social Cognitive Neuroscience to Organizational Change by Dr. Rob Snyder, which is a neuroscience point of view on how and why human beings do what they do. And so we've incorporated a lot of those findings into our training, education, and change management offerings. Norm, tell us a little bit more about the science of learning. I want to focus a little bit more on the kind of the neuroscience side and kind of how the, the brain works. In our book, we basically talked about three brains. Uh, brain one is our reptilian brain, and that deals with the uh, fight or fight versus freeze or ignore, and, and it's a warning signal for us. You need to react quickly. Brain two is our social brain, and you know from birth, the need to be social and emotional creatures is pretty critically important for our survival. 
And that brain has four jobs. Um, first job is maintaining or enhancing one's self-image. And what I mean by that is we all have an image of ourselves and ultimately we're all heroes in our own minds in a lot of ways. We do everything right and or if we don't, um, we have excuses and reasons for that. When someone talks with us or, or basically exposes us and says, Brad, you're not doing a very good job today and here's why. Well, what happens is neurotoxins automatically start coming out of your, you know, out of your brain and it makes you feel uncomfortable and puts you on the defensive. So that self-image ties into change and change management and dealing with uh, individuals from a managerial standpoint. The second part of what Brain2 does is people love to receive fair and equitable treatment. And so when we're in a social environment or actually every day in the office at the water cooler or when you're in an airport, what are you typically hearing people talking about? And that is someone's being treated unfairly, whether it be positively, could be the boss's favorite, or negatively, um, in this case, potentially even in, in the environment of a hospital or a physician's practice. That's naturally wired in our brains, that whole empathy side of things. Uh, the third is eliminating ambiguity and creating the certainty. Uh, we all like to have certainty in our lives. We like to know what's happening next, right? And so you'll find yourself in the big change here is where what's going to happen with our with the hospital we're going to have reorg maybe happening we may have a change in in staffing how is that going to affect my life so the certainty aspect is critical and then finally in brain two um, everyone wants to have a sense of control people like to control their outcomes and so having that sense of control which again um, how is this change going to affect me i need to have that sense of control and then brain three which is basically what differentiates us from the rest of the life in here on Earth is uh, the auto, uh, you know, neocortex, and that's our thinking brain. And basically what we've learned there in, is how do people think and absorb information? Uh, learning in the environment of which you participate, operate in, is critically important. Hence, in, in healthcare, simulations and using the simulation labs, right? That's the environment in which we're going to learn, and we've got uh, studies have shown you're going to retain a lot more that, that knowledge if you're learning in the environment of which you're going to be performing later. Another thing we've learned is context. Uh, and that goes back into the role-based training. I'd like to understand and learn only what I need to learn in the context of my job. If I'm on, on the floor in a, in a nursing role, then I want to understand and be trained and educated in context with my job in nursing, not what I do back home as a father or as a mother. Now, our research has shown just how important uh, this concept of communication is, both in terms of making patients feel confident in their care that we're providing them, but also in terms of engaging employees and engaging providers in the workforce. And you said that the human brain learns by metaphors and remembers by stories. Tell us a little bit more about just how important that is with regard to learning and change. So Brad, yeah, if a good metaphor is like a visual image or typically like a fo photograph, uh, a good story is like a movie, and as you mentioned, your research and our research have shown that people remember better by stories. When you're hearing a story, you're basically relating that back to something you've already known in your past and something that's already been burned into your brain, and so stories are critically important to convey good information, good messages, and getting people comfortable in a flow of, okay, I get that concept, I understand this story, here's how I relate it back to what I've done or seen in the past, and now I'm going to remember what you're telling me. So stories have been uh, fantastic in engagement, fantastic in uh, learning ability and learning retention. How does one design training with the brain in mind? Going back to the environment we're in today, um, the amount of complexity, by the way, of what needs to be trained and educated is daunting. Before we were all born, back in the Industrial Revolution, even prior to that, change occurred at a certain pace, measured in hundreds of years or maybe decades. 
And then we've got into the uh, time after the wars where change accelerated and got into years. So the pace of change is not slowing down, and the pace of change creates an awful lot of stress on organizations. When an organization decides to adopt some change, the training programs then become critical because now, okay, what are we going to do with this workforce? Too much information at this point in time within the training education is overwhelming, feeds misunderstanding and resistance. And, and so you can imagine if you don't invest enough time in the design and development of training, it's going to be more of a one-size-fits-all. And so there lies a challenge, which is speed uh, of getting the change done in the training done versus investment in the amount of dollars available to do it with the right amount of fidelity. And then finally, just what methods do we do to deliver training? There's so many methods today. As we, we know, we're in a podcast right now, and this is one method. We all be, uh, have videos. We watch at home all the time. You do it yourself videos. We attend training classes. Um, we take our e-learning and some of it's check-the-box type training and some of it's a little bit more in-depth. So uh, we actually meet in huddles and we deal with um, company meetings and Training education happens all day long, every day. So those multiple modalities also are critically important. So how do you get the right bites of information within the right modalities to the right people so it's not overwhelming and it's in context with their lives so it doesn't stress them out? Give our listeners some of the reasons you found why most change initiatives fail. Studies have shown there are several reasons for failure and change. Um, implementation issues that happen with technologies and things that may may not have been thought out as well. Um, lack of campaigns in terms of education and communication. And so when we look at change, we look at this as really as a, as a um, omni-channel marketing uh, branding initiative where communication is critical. Um, oftentimes changes don't work or aren't as successful because there's not enough resources dedicated to them. And if you look at any large change initiative, you folks are doing their daily jobs, then you're also asking them to actually take on another role as well. So uh, having a lack of dedicated resources. And so sometimes people blame culture and say our culture is not conducive to change. Uh, you can adopt some neuroscience to help uh, in, help change and improve that. Um, I mentioned communications earlier through campaigns. Well, communications is probably the single most uh, important factor in getting a change to occur. Poor training. Yeah. Training sometimes is an afterthought. Yeah, oftentimes is and, uh, and doesn't get receive the investment in time that it truly does need. People are naturally inclined to resist change. So go back to your social brain and the need for certainty and need for control. Those two aspects are critical for, for change. And our brains basically are hardwired to make change difficult. So not only do our brains protect our circuits, actually defend against changing patterns. So when a change occurs, a new processes, um, new communications, new roles, what have you, our brain is basically fighting against that. We've got hardwired uh, neural connections and noxious chemicals punishing us for trying to change our hardwired connections. It's not that they, they, they don't think it's a good idea, it's just they're fighting with their hardwired circuits that saying, okay, no, I don't want to work that hard today. So ways to deal with that, um, basically break the change into smaller bite-sized pieces so it's manageable so people can get their arms and heads wrapped around that. And you need to help people rewire their brains over time. So um, again, smaller pieces of that change. So basically taking a very large change initiative, breaking into smaller pieces in 
providing it to their to our staff in manageable chunks so it's not overwhelming to them okay and just recognizing the fact that these folks are not necessarily bad people because they don't you you think they don't want to change or they can't change they've got to deal with the hardwired brain patterns that they've learned for dozens and dozens of years and you over time you need to help them reconnect those uh those patterns so the the change occurs and it always does. It just takes a little bit of time. So I think an organization can do a better job with their communications and the people side of change because it is critically important. You and your company have developed an organizational change model. Can you describe that model of organizational change as your team approaches it? And what are the benefits of having that strategy in place? We do some clinical, but mostly more on the soft skills within healthcare. Each of them have the same things in common, and the approach shouldn't be any different. The way you go about change really is at the human level. We're all human beings. We all have these, again, feelings and emotions and things. Now we recognize actually coming from um, our, our brains. So high-level approach we follow is, first and foremost, you need to inform somebody. Uh, a change is going to occur. You need to inform them in context with their world, and they need to understand that. So that informational part of the change is the first step. But it's not something you do at the organizational high 30,000-foot level. That's something you do at the detail level. And the better you do at that, the better it's going to be accepted. Again, people are going to automatically go back to, I'm not in control. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And that's what's going on in their brains. So when we inform individuals of change, let's get it down to their level of detail and context with their job. Because, again, if you go back to an individual's need for certainty, in clarity and control, well, let us neutralize the fear that they're going to have um, by going back down to their level as to hear how this change is going to affect you and your job. So then the next step of the change process is on engagement. Key parts of your organization will start getting engaged with the change itself and how that's going to affect them and the rest of the staff and the rest of their organization. And those will be your key people. Get them engaged so they can understand and they can adopt that change, and then they can help convey that to the rest of the organization. So getting people involved. Getting people involved helps overcome the lack of control um, and lack of clarity. The third phase is preparation. And going back to the learning side of things, we know that people are busy. And so when we prepare people for a change, there's two major things that we look at. One is getting the, the right information in context with their job the right amount of information, not too much, not too little. And the second piece is it needs to be timely. We're not going to educate and train and communicate to people details of the change of the job six or nine months before the change occurs, right? It needs to be closer to when the change is actually going to occur. Uh, next phase is support your learners in, in your workforce. Um, the change occurred. Some folks are going to be perfectly understanding what needs to happen, and they're going to be in tune with it. Uh, others will need a little bit more assistance and help in order to get them to that performance level. So you support them, as everyone's going to be a little different. As we mentioned, going back to their preparedness, their ability to rewire their brains, their ability to adopt and accept this, this change, how do you help an organization sustain that change? Just because you roll out, roll out an initiative and just because people have changed to some extent doesn't mean they're going to stay that way. Norm, I think that patient experience performance, as measured by CAP surveys or other, other instruments, it's not linear. It's often varied. Um, and 
the final phase of change that you discussed is sustaining the change. I think a lot of our listeners are probably struggling with that phase, and I would argue that may be the most difficult phase of them all. Do you agree with that? Yeah, we've seen that across many of our, uh, our customers as well. And one of the reasons I mentioned as to why change initiatives fail is because of lack of dedicated resources. And that is, that is one of them. In other words, after we basically rolled out this new training education program and we've got the mentoring and the coaching and, and all these things, we've got our folks engaged in uh, following our, our HCAP, CGCAPs, other CAP scores, and then, okay, we're done. And we basically, all the soldiers and troops go home and all the individuals helping out, we move on to the next thing. And there's the challenge. There is, you can't move on to the next thing. You will have had to have that ingrained in the fabric of your culture at that point in time. So the sustainment is not easy. Um, and, and there lies where I believe some of the organizations ought to be investing uh, a bit more into that sustainment so um, we can get that cultural change to occur where it is truly in the fabric of everybody. And unfortunately, many of the organizations treat this in it's just another check the box thing to do and, and that it, we've, that doesn't work and you know and we all know that so um, invest more in the sustainment of this and keep it going as part of everyday cultural thing until it occurs some hospitals have done fantastic that's just the way they operate and, and they get it a lot of physician practices as well um, but many others it's still just a long challenge for them so sustainment is key invest in the sustainment is what we're really getting at here Assuming that organizational change is driven by personalized learning, what can we ascertain for changes to learning dynamics, particularly, again, in, in the healthcare environment in the next, say, five years? The world is moving at extremely fast pace right now towards data collection, analysis, insights um, to help us deliver efficiency and fluidity into the, into the learning environments. Learning is, has got to be accessible through multiple modalities, again, uh, as opposed to an individual going to training. Training has got to be delivered to people where people can absorb it at their time when they want to. Training education needs to be in context. The learner, when they receive that information, need to have the context of what this training education is about in terms of the way they fit into their world and the way they fit into their job. Training education next five years also has to be very digestible. We're all overwhelmed with information. We want to digest it when we're ready to digest it. And it needs to be fun. Again, you want to get the uh, engagement. Well, let's make it so it is, and I use the word fun, that can be replaced with just about anything. It needs to be something where the, the individual receives satisfaction out of something. And so let's go back to the personalized learning. If I already know something, I'm not going to get a lot of satisfaction out of it. Okay, I just took some of my time to learn attempted to learn something, I already knew that. So um, it needs to be something which I didn't already know or something I can build upon from what I knew in the past and add more value to me. If you look across all the digital media outlets, the way they have taken their information and they segmented it in much smaller pieces today. And you as a user get to dictate what types of information flows down to you. So you've already filtered that. So the point I'm getting is control to the user to be able to dictate what education training they get in the context that they want it in, I believe you're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the next five years. And the reasons are because we're collecting data. I'm talking about analysis, observations, assessment of individuals or individuals like you. These are some pretty big changes you're talking about, uh, especially with regard to how learners consume information. What have you seen from the case studies that your team has performed 
And what have you learned from that as far as the components that will change the way learners are consuming information today relative to in the future? We took the research we performed with the Air Force Research Laboratories in personalized accelerated learning for pilots, um, getting them up to speed on certain aircraft. We took that research and we applied that into healthcare. And so in essence, what we did on a couple of our studies was we trained, we provided about four hours of training education to two different hospitals. And one, they was done in the classroom, was proctored, and they started the training education from in a certain sequence. So module one, two, three, four, through module 30 or something. The other group, we assessed them, pre-assessed. We provided personalized um, learning paths and personalized learning content for each of the individuals. So some of those individuals may have received maybe one hour of training, maybe maybe 20 minutes of training, right? Because we just provided them with what they needed. And lo and behold, we found at the end of all this, two things. One was the learning outcomes and gains were almost similar. So you can imagine the cost of putting people in a classroom for four hours, taking them off their shift and putting them in a classroom proctored after a 12-hour shift, take four hours of training education in, in, in a certain sequence, taking it all at one time. The other group was, hey, you've got 45 days to complete this. Take it any way, any order you want to take it in, take it any way you want, take it from home, do it any way you want. And the learning outcomes were in essence similar. So that's going to tell you something in terms of the cost and in, in, in investment to, to do it the old-fashioned way, as I call it, versus the new way of letting people do it at their own time in chunks. Um, the second thing, we did some decay rate studies and, again, looked at was there any decay in, it, in learning, if you will, from either of those two groups uh, after 90 days, 120 days, and there wasn't. So, again, if someone took 20 minutes of the four hours of training because they already knew all the rest of the training, we were able to assess them, and after 120 days, their performance was still similar to the performance of someone who had four hours of the training education. We found that folks really liked that whole notion of not taking training they don't have to take because it was showed a respect to them, particularly the, our, our, our nurses who've got a lot of experience. Um, so they really enjoyed that. Um, ironically, some of them thought that they should have accelerated out of even more content than they did. And so that's a little bit of a uh, calibration for us as we collect more data to determine what the right acceleration points are. There's a whole host of research that have shown rates of burnout or work-life balance uh, are more challenging than ever, particularly amongst physicians. How do you think personalized learning can help reduce and, and, and maybe even eliminate this problem? Because it's a very serious issue that many healthcare organizations are dealing with today. Physicians don't like training education to start with, regardless of what it is. And so if there's something that they need to do for purposes of compliance or regulatory or something that they ought to do because maybe their patient satisfaction scores aren't where they need to be, they do appreciate the fact that, okay, you've assessed me and I don't have to take all this training. And that simple notion of showing them that respect they, they really enjoyed that a lot. So if you can apply that not just to training education but across many of the areas of which uh, they deal with on a daily basis, even in the administration, the overhead reporting, I would think you could um, make their lives a heck of a lot easier where they can focus again on, on their mission and, and just ensuring that that patient gets better as opposed to all the other uh, challenges that they're being thrown at them on a, on a daily basis. Let me ask you a bottom line question. In your mind, what are the benefits to personalized learning compared to more traditional methods? From a profit and loss standpoint, personalized learning is the most efficient learning delivery system, period. 
Uh, there is, you know, at the end of the day, if you get if you would get to the ideal situation is there's no inefficiency. I'm only going to train and educate people for what they don't already know. It's that simple. It's respectful of time. There's a significant time savings. And so outside of that, if you want to not look at from an ROI standpoint, you're looking at just going back to the human beings. We're showing respect to these individuals by not wasting their time. They'll be far more engaged because they're not going to be bogged down into taking training education. They don't only really have to do and rolling their eyes and getting upset about it. So what do you see as the next steps in learning and learning culture? Innovation is happening so darn quickly. Um, the way we absorb knowledge and information, the way our brains are being rewired, our, you know, our kids and the younger generation, they do things very differently than we do. So I want to urge folks to truly pay attention to that. It's changing as we speak in the next three to five, well, every year here on in, it's going to continue to change. So look to continue to evolve. It's happening not just here in the U.S., it's happening globally. And so whereas there used to be large large-scale change over years and decades. Now, change is incremental, and it's so fast. And organizations need to adopt that culture. We will change constantly. Our infrastructure is going to change. The, our people are going to change. The value we provide to the world is going to change. So adopt that change as part of what you do. So then how does that work its way into the training education? Training education needs to be extremely fluid. Training education needs to come to the individuals when the individuals need it, not when an organization determines this is the time we have to provide training education. Individuals today are naturally curious and will naturally seek out education. Individuals today want lifelong learning. They're doing it every day. And you're, going to, you're seeing it in the social world, whether it be Facebook or others, Twitter. They're learning constantly, and learning is no longer a single event. Learning is continuous. It's incremental. Just like the change going on in the world today, it's constant. It's in small chunks. So adopt those, and don't be afraid of any of that. The whole point, in my opinion, is simply this. Put it in context. Get it to the learner so that when they want it in their context, and I think that's just going to be a big key for everyone's success. Norm, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Our industry has undergone tremendous change in the last four or five years due to the Affordable Care Act. And as you can imagine, that is just one massive change management uh, initiative for all of us. And now with the new administration, things are up in the air. And so I'm going to go back to levels of uns- going back to brain two. Uh, we're not controlling our destiny because we don't know what our destiny is just yet. So that's the cause for a lot of issues for everybody uh, throughout the, the entire uh, healthcare industry. And I expect that the dust is not cleared yet and will not clear for a while. So um, my, my thinking is for this industry is we continue doing the good work that we do for patient care. We continue doing the things that are important for individuals from patient care, for dignity, of being treated fairly. Those things are not going to change regardless of what administration is in, what have you. And we should continue to find ways to innovate and in, in drive more quality for our patients. It's critically important for our country. Uh, we're spending an awful lot of money of our uh, large percentage of our gross domestic product on health care. Let us continue to find ways to innovate and improve such that someday uh, health care is something that it's, it's an easy thing to deliver, if you will, with a lot uh, without our political environments modifying the world we live in and imposing rules, regulations, and things that impede our ability to care for our patients. 
So I'm suggesting we need to recognize that is going to continue on. It is stressful. However, we ought to embrace that and do the best we can to deliver quality to our families, friends, mothers, fathers, children, and loved ones. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about what we've talked about today by visiting our website at healthstream.com slash podcast. For more Second Opinions, follow us on Facebook and Twitter or subscribe on our website.